Acts chapter four, we're gonna begin reading at verse eight. Let's read together. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Lord, thank you for your presence. And I ask that you will open our hearts that we may hear and receive not so much what the preacher is going to say, but what the Spirit is going to say in the midst of the preaching. Speak to our hearts today, O oh Lord. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. Lord, I wanna pray a special blessing today upon our missionaries, Bishop Alex and his wife, Leah, and Dr. Darnell, his wife, Janice, and all that they represent in their ministries. I ask for your favor to be multiplied to them your guidance to be given to them, your protection to surround them, and that you would go before them, prepare the way, and prosper the work of their hands for the kingdom of God. Today, Lord, I lift up to you other life-giving churches, and I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith, and I ask that you will draw them back to you so that not one of them is lost. I pray all of these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Right at the beginning of this message, there are a couple of truths I want to establish as foundational both for the message today and also for life in general. First truth is this, sincerity doesn't change reality. I read about a pilot who was flying a small plane through dense fog over some mountains. His vision was severely limited, so he was following the instrument readings on his plane. The gauge told him he was flying at a certain altitude and was high enough to clear the top of the mountain ahead. He sincerely believed everything was okay until he flew right into the side of the mountain. This pilot had a sincere faith. He believed the gauge on his instrument panel was correct. He believed he was flying above the mountain. Not only did he believe it, he acted on his faith. He flew with confidence. The problem was all his sincerity didn't change reality. One moment he believed he was sincerely right. The next moment he was sincerely dead. Same thing is true in every sphere of life and it's especially true in matters of faith and religion. 
No matter how many people believe something, and regardless of how sincere they may be in their belief, if they are wrong, the results can be disastrous. Let me give you a second foundational truth. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. The moment you affirm something as true, you immediately exclude anything that challenges that. For example, when you say two plus two equals four, at that moment you have excluded every other number from being the solution to the equation. Truth is always narrow. Truth is always exclusive. I know that goes against the grain of modern thinking, but quite frankly, I'm very thankful this is so. Last week, I was given an invitation to travel to Lusaka, Zambia in April to be part of the dedication of the clinic that we have helped to build there. I'm currently trying to organize my schedule and locate enough funds to make the trip. Once I have tickets in hand and I board the airplane, I can promise you I want a narrow-minded pilot. (laughs) There are a lot of points on the map he could go, but I only want him flying to Zambia. And when we arrive in Lusaka, I only want him landing on the runway. I do not want him putting that plane down between the ways or out in the parking lot. Now, I know that's narrow. It may even seem pretty intolerant, but it isn't bad because it's right. Here's another thing to consider. When you're dealing with individual feelings and opinions, there can be broad diversity and multiple options and opinions. But when you're dealing with objective truth, what's true for one is true for all. See, when I'm on that airplane, suppose I say, I believe this plane is going to get me to Lusaka, Zambia. And the guy across the aisle from me hears it and says, well, that may be true for you, but not necessarily for me. Well, I would disagree. It isn't true for me unless it's true for everybody on board the plane. Tolerance in personal opinions is a virtue but tolerance when dealing with facts is ridiculous. Now, right now, some of you are wondering what in the world this talk about planes and truth and reality has to do with anything concerning our faith. And I would say to you, these things I've been talking about lie at the heart of the meaning of the Christian faith. They are basic tenets of the faith. Listen to the conversation in the public arena and the talk in every corner is about celebrating diversity and inclusiveness and tolerance for multiple views. The reason Christianity is mocked and dismissed and despised the way it is in this current climate is because it has the audacity to stand up and say, ours is the right path and Jesus is the only way. This is considered the height of arrogance and presumption in our modern world, unless, of course, it is true. The central issue is whether or not the statement of Jesus is true when he says he is the only way to God. 
If the statement is not true, then it has no more effect than someone stating the moon is made of green cheese. However, if the statement is true, then it is a truth with eternal consequences. We can choose not to believe the statement, but if it is true, then it remains true whether we believe it or not. Today we have various paths to salvation being proposed which are contradictory to each other. As such, they cannot all possibly be correct. There are many names under heaven by which you can find religion, but only one name by which you can find salvation. This is the message of Peter when he stands before the Sanhedrin in our text and declares in verse 12 of chapter 4 of the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. As the book of Acts opens, it's about 40 days after Jesus has resurrected. The disciples accompanied him to the Mount of Olives and watched as he was taken from their sight back into heaven. With the words of the angel's promise of his return ringing in their ears, they then obeyed the command of Jesus and returned to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, 120 of them were gathered in an upper room and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. In the midst of the celebration accompanying this outpouring of the Spirit, Peter stood up and preached to the gathered crowd and 3,000 people were converted and became the beginning of the church. All of that happens in the first two chapters of the book of Acts. Then when chapter 3 opens, Peter and John are on their way to the temple to participate in afternoon prayers. At the gate called Beautiful, they encounter a lame man begging alms. The Bible says this man looked at them expecting to receive something from them. Remember, Peter told him, we don't have any money, but we can give you something better than silver or gold. Then he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. He reached down, took the man by the hand, pulled him up. Immediately, the man's feet and ankles were strengthened, and with a leap, he stood upright. He entered the temple with the disciples, walking and leaping and praising God. When the people saw him celebrating his miracle, they recognized him as the one who used to sit and beg at the entrance to the temple. The Bible says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter then explained to the people that this man was healed by the power of Jesus and through faith in his name. He took the opportunity to preach another mini-sermon about the need for repentance in order that sins might be washed away, and then times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. Well, while he was preaching, the priests and the captain of the temple guards and the Sadducees came up, and they were upset because the disciples were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. These religious leaders laid hands on Peter and John, put them in jail. The next day, they gathered the rulers and the elders and the scribes. They brought Peter and John out and began to interrogate them, asking by what power or in what name they performed this miracle. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, began to boldly proclaim the power of the name of Jesus and that there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. Well, when Peter makes this statement, the first thing I want you to see is he's talking about an exclusive Savior. An exclusive Savior. Now, anytime someone hears this, you can anticipate the immediate objection. Oh, pastor, that's so narrow-minded. 
Surely there are other religious systems with valuable insights into living good and productive and moral lives. And the answer is yes. There are many religions with good teachings. But what you fail to understand is that living a good moral life is not what ultimately brings you into a right relationship with God. And at the end of the day, you can't say Jesus was a good man teaching a way to salvation and then claim there are other equally valid paths to salvation. Jesus won't let you do that. He makes exclusive claims to being the only way to salvation. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. In verse one of that chapter, he said, if anybody tries to enter by another way, he's a thief and a robber. Jesus makes a definitive proclamation of exclusivity in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. <clears throat> Most people read that and conclude it's talking about walking the straight and narrow path so they can enter the narrow gate at the end of the way and enjoy the eternal life of the kingdom of God. That's not what he said. He said nothing about walking a straight path to get to a narrow gate of entrance. If that were the case, then we would gain entrance to his eternal presence by our own effort and personal achievement. Instead, he said the path begins with a narrow gate. You enter through the narrow gate, which is Jesus, and then you can walk a straight road with his help. Now, either Jesus is correct and he is the only way to salvation, or he is wrong and all other religions that proclaim multiple paths are right except the path of following Jesus. If all roads lead to God, then Jesus is false and has no reliability. Anyone claiming to be a Christian, watch this, anyone claiming to be a Christian and says other religions are equally valid is contradicting Jesus and declaring he is a liar. You cannot affirm that following Jesus is merely a way of salvation, one way among many possibilities. Two conflicting opposite statements cannot both be true. At its core, see, am I doing all right? Everybody's, okay. <clears throat> at, at its core, all sin is against God, no matter how many others may be affected by it. That's what David is saying in Psalm 51, verse 4, when he prays to God in repentance and says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Since all sin is against God alone, that means only God can forgive sins. Even God's forgiveness does not nullify sin. Although you may receive forgiveness, the debt of sin must be paid. Instead of requiring the penalty at your hands, God provided the payment in the sacrifice of his only begotten son. That's what it means in Romans chapter five, verses eight and nine. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See, only Jesus 
Jesus can forgive sin because only Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. That's why Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Listen, a religious leader can't forgive sins. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Gandhi, not Confucius, not the Dalai Lama, not the Pope, not the pastor, not any other religious leader because he too is in debt to sin. The debt of sin was so great, only God could pay it. So Jesus, God in the flesh, satisfied the wrath of God by dying on the cross. Nobody else could do that. You are forgiven because the penalty for your sin was laid to the account of Jesus and nailed to his cross. God poured out his wrath against your sin on Jesus on the cross. I'm told the last words of the Buddha before his death were, keep striving. The last words of Jesus before his death on the cross were, it is finished. (laughs) I submit to you, Jesus is the only way to salvation because it is Jesus alone who has the credentials, the capacity, and the capability to save. Have you ever thought about what it might have been like to be sitting off in a corner somewhere while the learned theologians of the day were questioning that 12-year-old Jesus in the temple? Have you ever thought about what that might have been like? One of them might have said, well, tell me, son, how old are you? He could have said, well, on my mother's side, I'm 12 years old. But on my father's side, I'm older than my mother and I'm just as old as my father. In fact, before Abraham was, I am. On his mother's side, he became thirsty. On his father's side, he is the water of life. On his mother's side, he experienced hunger. On his father's side, he is the bread of life. On his mother's side, he was homeless and lived in poverty. But on his father's side, he created the universe and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. On his mother's side, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But on his father's side, he commanded the stone to be rolled back and he called Lazarus out of the grave back to life. I I feel like preaching right now. There, there, There is no other person who has ever lived with the credentials of this man. Only Jesus is co-equal, co-existent with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus is the word of God by whom all things were made. Only Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Only Jesus lived a sinless life. Only Jesus died on a cross to pay the full penalty for sin. Only Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. Only Jesus arose on the morning of the first day of the week, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Only Jesus ascended into heaven. Only Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for the saints. Only Jesus is one day soon and very soon returned 
returning to this earth in great power and glory. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the bright and morning star. Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders but has now become the capstone of the building. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Jesus is the eternal I am. Jesus is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and ending, the first and the last. Jesus was dead, but he now lives and is alive forevermore. Jesus has been highly exalted and given a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is, it is Jesus who loves you enough to die for you. It is Jesus who cares enough about you to keep you from falling and to preserve you blameless until the coming of the Lord. It is Jesus who has given the Holy Spirit to live in you and to enable you to live the overcoming life. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the helper. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the way maker. Jesus is the peace speaker. Jesus is the burden bearer. Jesus is the heavy load sharer. Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the mender of broken hearts. Jesus is the restorer of shattered dreams. Jesus is comfort in times of grief. Jesus is joy in times of sorrow. Jesus is strength in times of weakness. Jesus is wisdom in times of confusion. Jesus supplies all your need according to his riches in glory. He bears all your burdens. His word is secure. His grace is enough. Jesus is the only one able to save you. Listen, listen. You are either saved by Jesus or you are not saved at all. Jesus is the exclusive Savior. Not only does Peter preach about the exclusive Savior, he also speaks about the essential salvation. I don't know if you paid much attention to it when we read it. There's one little word that just leaps out at me in verse 12. It's the word must. By which we must be saved. I know most people don't want anybody telling them what they must do. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you your greatest need is not higher self-esteem or increased earnings or greater popularity. Your greatest need is to be saved. If you are not saved your sin will incur the wrath of God. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just reporting what the book says, okay? If you are not saved, you will be eternally lost. It doesn't matter what part of the world you live in, bishops. You must be saved. Regardless of your race, your nationality, 
Your sex? The gender with which you identify? <clears throat> your socioeconomic class? Your profession? Your marital status? You must be saved. Perhaps the greatest point of unbelief in our society is an unbelief in the wrath of God and the certain promise of judgment for the human race. See, in our day, we've managed to convince ourselves that all that matters is you're a good person. Eternal punishment is only going to be visited upon the really, really, really bad people. So just try to stay out of any serious trouble and you'll be fine. What well, we hear. You know, in the Old Testament, the fundamental difference between the true prophet and the false prophet was the true prophet proclaimed the day of the Lord as a day of consuming wrath. The people didn't want to hear that, so the false prophets got rich, promising the people that the day of the Lord was a day of brightness and light and joy and prosperity, and there's nothing to worry about. Maybe we ought to learn a lesson because that sounds a lot like what we hear today. We're all told everything's going to be all right, so don't worry. We're told the church is going to slowly but surely possess the land, and we will finally arrive at a time when people in positions of authority are all going to be promoting Christian values, and our world will finally know peace and true prosperity. And we're told everybody's going to get in on the blessings that are going to flow. Somehow, as much as I'd like to believe that, but that message doesn't line up with the message of God's word. Hear me today. The message of the Bible is there is coming an awesome, terrible day of the Lord in which the world is going to be judged. The message of the Bible is there is coming a day in which the wrath of God and the fury of a holy, righteous God is going to be poured out over the whole earth. Prophet Amos tells about the day of the Lord when he says, you celebrate the day of the Lord. Don't you realize that the day of the Lord is a day of darkness? There's no light in it, for it is the day when God will speak in wrath and his anger will consume the planet and his judgment will go forth and his violence will be seen in the streets. If you want to know about the day of the Lord, listen to the prophet in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. If you want to know about the essential need for salvation, listen to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater 
has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I'm telling you today, judgment is coming. You must be saved. Listen, if Jesus said he is the only way to God, and Muhammad or Buddha or anybody else said there's some other way to God, then either Jesus is wrong or Muhammad is wrong. They cannot both be right. Either Jesus is the only way to God the Father or he is not. If he is, then that is true for you and me as well as everybody else, no matter where they live or what they believe. The claim of Jesus to be the only way was not a sidebar to his ministry. It was the heart of his entire message. If there's any other way, then his basic message is wrong and he is not a way at all. If, however, his message is true, then what you do with his message has eternal consequences. Once we see the incredible claims Jesus made about himself, this fact creates the greatest spiritual dilemma you or I or our friends will ever face. We can accept the claims Jesus made, which means viewing him not merely as a great teacher, but as God's son and our king, our Lord, and our judge. On the other hand, we can reject his claims. But that means rejecting him as any sort of good teacher. After all, Anyone who went around making the kinds of claims Jesus made, if those claims were false, would be a terrible teacher and a false prophet, not to mention a person who probably needs to be institutionalized. C.S. Lewis made this point in one of his most memorable comments. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. When you examine the religions of the world, you find they are all in general a strategy for how to reach God. In that sense, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity, by contrast, holds that man, no matter how hard he tries, cannot reach God. Man cannot ascend to God's level because God's level is too high. There is therefore only one remedy, and that is God must come down to man's level. And that is exactly what happened in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter preached it in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Is it exclusive? Absolutely. But if it is indeed truth, then it matters both for time and for eternity how you respond to the invitation to surrender your life to Jesus. 
And that's the invitation I want to extend to you today. Are you with Jesus or against him? There is no middle ground, no other choice. A decision must be made, and it's a decision with eternal consequences. Bow with me, please.